do you exercise? You know, go to, no, I love the honesty immediately. Do you go to the, the track at the health center? Do you take a little turn on the elliptical machine at the gym? Maybe you go to a spin class downtown or a yoga class at the library or maybe a cannoli lifting class at the bakery. I don't know, you know, some, kind of, you know some, some kind of exercise somewhere. Recently, one of my doctors with some issues I'm having said, you know what, you need to exercise a little bit. You need to shed a few pounds. And so I've been, been hitting the treadmill a little bit, uh, doing some very mild machine weights. I've cut out all my diet colas for about six or eight weeks now, and all I drink is water. And what is the result of all this effort I have put into my health? Well, I've gained eight pounds. <clears throat> Yeah, it's not muscle, Carol. It's not muscle. That's, that's the most disturbing thing. <laughs> Full disclosure, I did meet the guy who delivers fresh donuts to my local convenience store, and I found out he comes every night at 7 o'clock. I don't know if it has anything to do with those eight pounds, but it's just a, a point of reference for everything that's happening. Donuts aside, I am a little discouraged at my lack of progress. Uh, during all of my wife's pregnancies, uh, I gained tons of weight. She was pregnant. I looked pregnant. There was no question about it. But every time after our kids were born, you know, I would, you know, cut out the sweet tea and, and cut out the sweet carbonated beverages, and, and I'd start walking around the neighborhood at night, and I mean, sure enough, in, in just a few weeks, a couple of months, you know, the, the weight just started, you know, disappearing again. Now, for some reason, I'm sure it's not age-related, that's not working this time. I, I don't know what it is, so I'm, I'm having to, to do a little research, and so I did, and I found out about something called interval training. Now, I'm no kinesiologist, and so I'm just going to keep this really simple. It would be like if your exercise was walking. What you're supposed to do is, is walk really fast for a minute and then walk not so fast for three minutes. Now, there's all kind of variations on that with, you know, treadmills and walking and running and elliptical machines and weights and everything else. It's all kind of interval training. But, but I decided that, that maybe this is something I should try. So this past Friday, I, I went out and did my, my first interval training. And if I had to give some commentary on that interval training, it would be something like this. Torture your body for a minute to the point that everything in you hurts tremendously. And then for three minutes, slow down a little bit and try to talk yourself out of not doing that again. That's my reflection of, of interval training. I didn't win that argument with myself this week. I, I went the, the full route of about you know, 30 minutes of doing this interval training, and, uh, and it was okay. Now, will it continue? I don't know. Will, will, I, will I lose the weight? I don't know. I, I did tell you he comes every night at 7 o'clock, right? <laughs> every night at 7. So, I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to see. That is what I do on my walk, Ryan. You're right. I just I walk to the convenience store to get the donuts. So I feel like I'm working it off, you know. My kids told me I was way too creepy about how excited I was to meet that guy. I almost ran up to him in the parking lot, actually, but I let him get inside the building. You know, sometimes um, life feels like we're in interval training, right? You have one hour of fear, and then you have three hours where things are a little bit easier. 
You have one week of stress, and then you have three weeks where things are a little easier. You have one month of anxiety, and then you have three months where things are a little better. You have one year of suffering, and then you have three years where things are a little easier. Or maybe you would say that your interval is a little different. It's more like three months of deep suffering and then just an hour where things are easier and then the suffering begins again. So what do we do? I mean, what do we do with all these highs and lows in life? What do we do with the the peaks and valleys of life? How do we deal with life as it comes, as difficult as it is? How, How do we do life in the midst of difficulty? The Apostle Paul, he found a way to do life that gives hope. It gives hope for the terrific days and the terrible days. It gives hope for the happy weeks and the horrible weeks. It gives hope for the comforting years and the crushing years. So what kind of hope is this? What is this way of doing life? Well, let's find out. Paul writing to the folks at Philippi, Philippians 3, beginning with verse 10. He writes, that I may know him. Paul's record is stuck. His his loop is looping. In this one little part of this letter to the folks at Philippi, he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. But, But why? Why does he keep saying it over and over again? Why does Paul want to know Christ so badly? Charles Spurgeon answers that question with a a kind of vivid response. He said this, Imagine for a moment that you are living in the age of the Roman emperors. You have been captured by Roman soldiers and dragged from your native country. You've been sold for a slave, stripped, whipped, branded, imprisoned, and treated with shameful cruelty. At last, you're appointed to die in the amphitheater, to make holiday for a tyrant. The populace assemble with delight. There they are, tens of thousands of them, gazing down from the living sides of the capacious Colosseum. You stand alone, armed only with a single dagger, a poor defense against gigantic beasts. A ponderous door is drawn up by machinery, and forth there rushes the monarch of the forest, a huge lion. You must slay him or be torn to pieces. Just a quick inside note, this is not a C.S. Lewis novel. This is exactly what the first Christians faced. You are absolutely certain that the conflict is too stern for you and that the sure result must and will be that those terrible teeth will grind your bones and drip with your blood. You tremble. Your joints are loosed. You are paralyzed with fear like the timid deer when the lion has dashed it to the ground. But what is this? Oh, wonder of mercy, a deliverer appears. A great unknown leaps from among the gazing multitude and confronts the savage monster. He quails not at the roaring of the devourer, but dashes upon him with terrible fury till, like a whipped cur, the lion slinks towards his den, dragging himself along in pain and fear. 
The hero lifts you up, smiles into your bloodless face, whispers comfort in your ear, and bids you be of good courage, for you are free. And this Spurgeon says this. Do you not think that there would arise at once in your heart a desire to know your deliverer? That's why Paul wanted to know Christ. If I'm in a car accident and and some stranger comes along and, and pulls me out, I'm unconscious and they pull me out before my car bursts into flames, I, I'm going to want to meet that person and, and thank that person. Every month on the, the third Tuesday of the month at 4 o'clock in our fellowship hall, there's a, a special group of friends to our church that meet. They're part of the Second Chance Care Group. They're folks who are waiting for an organ transplant or they've already had an organ transplant. Anyone's welcome to go on that Tuesday, and I would encourage you to go. That room is full of the most humble, thankful, sweet people you'll ever be around in your life. And most, if not all, they they would love to be able to meet and thank the person or the family of the person that made their transplant possible. Paul wanted to know Jesus because Jesus had saved him from the pain of hell. Jesus had saved him from the pressing terror of eternal judgment. Jesus had saved him from the emotional horror of being separated from God forever, from being separated from all that is good and happy and holy forever and ever and ever. If you've been rescued like that, You don't want to just meet and thank your rescuer, although you do want to do that. You want to know him. Paul, he wanted to know the one who gave his life as a ransom for his. He wanted to know the one who had loved him and and gave himself up for him so that he would never die, but that he would live forever. Paul wanted to really know the one that made a way for his last breath to actually really be his first breath. Paul wanted to know him. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to know your rescuer? Do you want to know Christ? Do you want to know your rescuer and your redeemer more than you want to know that girl or that boy you met in class? Do you want to know Christ more than you want to know the characters on that TV show that you're binge-watching? More than the characters in your Knight of Fort game. More than the characters in your new fiction bestseller. Do you want to know your rescue and redeemer more than the members of your favorite K-pop band? Do you want to know Jesus more than you want to know the, the latest movie trailers? Do you want to know Jesus more than the latest exercise tips? More than the latest conservative or liberal debates? More than the latest theological debates? Christian, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to know your rescuer? If you do not, then at the very least, you may not be a Christian. Stephen Cole said this, If you meet the girl of your dreams, but then never see her again, you won't have a relationship with her. I'm amazed over the last three decades of being in ministry, the people that I I meet who say that they have met Jesus, but seemingly have had no more time for him since that first meeting. 
Paul, he wanted to know Jesus. He, he wanted to know him. Think about who this is, too. This is Paul. At the time that he's writing this, Paul's been a Christian for like 30 years. 30 years later, his passion for Jesus has not waned at all. Arguably, Paul's the greatest Christian who ever lived on earth, and yet here he is wanting to know more of Jesus. Wanting to know more of who Jesus is. It's like he's saying, you know what? I'm not even scratching the surface of his Savior. I'm not even scratching the surface of his power and his authority and his mercy and his love. I I have not even broken ground yet on his mercy and his grace. I'm not trying to drop off some tickets for a guilt trip in your life. I'm just saying for the good of your parents and the good of your spouse and the good of your kids and the good of your grandkids, for the good of your neighbors and your friends, the good of the people that you work with and go to school with, the good of complete strangers you might run into, for the good of your job, for the good of your home, for the good of your community, for the good of your church, for the good of your own soul, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to know him more? Paul unpacks what it means really that he's saying about knowing Jesus. Listen to what he writes next in verse 10. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul Paul wants to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Now that At first glance, it kind of sounds like something we talk about at Easter, right? Oh, yeah, resurrection, that's what we do, you know, in the springtime on that one Sunday. But no, Paul's making it very clear that that Easter is is every day and every Sunday, that the resurrection plays into every second of our life. There's a man named Lazarus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus was a family friend of theirs, and Lazarus got sick and he died. And Jesus was going to comfort Mary and Martha. And as he approached, Martha came out to meet him. And this is what she said, John eleven twenty one. 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha has no problem giving out tickets for the guilt trip, right? She's fine with that, no problem. But the conversation continued. And listen to what happens next, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. There's a a little hint in Martha's response that that sounds like us sometimes. It's like we say, look, I'm a Christian, and I, I believe in heaven and all of that, but I want God to answer my prayer now. I know that that heaven is later, but I want better grades now. I know heaven is later, but I want to make the team now. I know heaven is later, but I want to graduate now. I know heaven is later, but I want a job now. I know heaven is later, but I want a better job now. I know heaven is later, but but I want my home fixed now. And I want my health fixed now. And I want my rebellious kids fixed now. And I want my marriage fixed now. I know heaven is later, but I want my stress and my fear and my worry and my anxiety, I want them fixed now. See, there's a a bit of what Martha says in in all of us. Yeah, I I know. I I know something's happening later. but, But I need something now. 
Listen to how Jesus responds. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's a fair question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the one and only resurrection and life? Do you believe that Jesus is the one and only way for life to conquer death? Do you believe that if you are relying on and trusting in and clinging to Jesus as your only source of salvation, you will live and never die? Do you believe that? In the movie Father of the Bride, Steve Martin plays the father, George Banks, and in one scene, he's, he's having a meltdown in the grocery store over hot dog buns. And there's this scene where he's yelling at the stock boy at the grocery store, and this is what he says, I'm not paying for one more thing I don't need. George Banks is saying no. And the stock boy looks at him with a bewildered look on his face, and he goes, Who's George Banks? To which Steve Martin responds with both hands pointing toward himself, me. There's a little bit of that scene in this scene with Martha. See, Martha, she's saying, look, I know something better is going to happen later, but but I need help today. I, I need help right now. And Jesus, with no meltdown, looks at Martha and says, Martha, it's, it's me. I am your help for today. I'm your help for right now. I am the resurrection. I'm the way that death gets conquered. Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And I am those things right now, not just later, but right now. One commentator says it this way, what Jesus did was move Martha from an abstract belief in the resurrection that will take place at the last day to a personal faith in him who alone can raise the dead. I love this scene. Jesus says, yes, Martha, I need you to come to me. I am your hope. I am your peace. I am your help. commentator goes on to say this, beloved, remember that wherever Jesus is, God's resurrection power is available now. Now. It's it's not just one day, although it is, but, but it's now. We are saved, we are being saved, and one day we will really be saved. In essence, what Paul's saying is, you know what, as I live my life right now today in the middle of all this junk, in the middle of all of my stress and anxiety at home and at work and at school, in the middle of this world that's full of evil, this world that's full of sin, as I live life in the middle of all of this, I want to emotionally and mentally and spiritually and personally understand and feel more of what it means that I have been raised up in Jesus. Paul saying, you know what, as I face health issues, as I face financial issues, as I face issues of fear and worry and stress, I want to emotionally and mentally and spiritually and personally know that one day I won't be here. 
I won't be in the midst of distress. I won't be in the midst of this anxiety. Jesus died to save my soul, and I will be raised up with him. Paul said, I want to be able to stand today on this shore and cast my wishful eye at my permanent address where I will be happy forever and forever blessed. Paul is wanting to know the resurrection power of Jesus because he needed it right then and right there. He wanted to personally know and feel and remember and enjoy what it means to be raised in Christ. He wanted to know Jesus personally. Some of them might ask, well, how do you do that? I mean, he's not, he's not here. I can't go eat pizza with Jesus. I can't go get coffee with Jesus. I can't play golf with Jesus. Jesus can't go with me to the paint store and pick out colors for the kitchen. I can't do anything with him. He's not here. I can't be around him. So, so how in the world am I supposed to have a personal relationship with Jesus? How am I supposed to personally experience the risen Savior? Well, that's a hard question to answer perfectly. But let me just help a little bit, hopefully, with something from Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes this. Sometimes when you're praying alone, sometimes when you're reading the scriptures, sometimes when you're meditating upon these things, there comes the strange awareness that there is another, someone else present, that you are not alone, and that he seems to be speaking to you. You don't hear, but you grasp the message. You understand what he's saying. He is there encouraging you about something you have done or perhaps chastising or upbraiding you. He is showing himself in his glory and wonder, asking you to come nearer and to spend more time with him. These are the things, this is a part of the fellowship about which the apostle is speaking. And then he says this, No, I have not seen him. I have not had a vision. I have not heard an audible voice addressing me. But thank God I can say those words. I know he is near and I feel his presence. I know he is near and I feel his presence. This might be oversimplified, but if you truly know Jesus, then you will truly know Jesus. You will know that he is near. You will experience his presence. It won't be perfect. It won't be like you got to wear the same t-shirt and use the same version of the Bible and sit in the same chair and drink from the same coffee mug and begin your prayer with the same sentence and every day mystically and magically it will happen. No. But you will know he is near and you will experience his presence. Paul knew the risen Jesus personally and he wanted to know him more. And he wanted to know more than just the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to what he says next. And to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, we're all tracking to like right here, right? I mean, Paul's on our page, right? I want to know the incredible universal power of the risen Jesus. I want it to be alive and active in my life every day. And then I really want it to be active at the end of my life here on earth. Yeah, I'm all in with that. And then Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. And we say, no, I'm all out with that. No, no, I'm not on board. Rich Cather says this, suffering and death are not fun. That's why they call them suffering and death. 
Throughout his life on earth, Jesus faced all kinds of suffering. He was ignored, he was opposed, he was rejected, he was betrayed, he was persecuted, he was tortured, and ultimately he was murdered. And we might say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, you're right if you're not going to follow Jesus. But if you are going to follow Jesus, it has everything to do with you. This is what Peter said. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Suffering for someone who's following Jesus should not be strange. It is a guarantee. What did Jesus say to his disciples? You know what? These people hate me, so if you're going to follow me, they're going to hate you too. We should be wary of thinking that Christianity is supposed to be popular and cool because Jesus never made that promise. Rick Thomas said this, Knowing Christ is an expensive, challenging, and painful process. It will cost you your life. Do not be deceived about this. Do you really want to know Christ? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected of men. Here's a daily question for believers, right? Do I want to follow Christ when it means I have to be a fellowshipper of his sufferings? See, here's the the kicker, though. See, if we avoid all rejection for our faith in Christ, if we avoid all persecution for our faith in Christ, we actually are stealing from ourselves. Because Jesus has promised that in the suffering, his strength will come to us. We actually will be stronger when we are suffering for the gospel. The math sounds so crazy to us. And yet story after story down through the ages of Christians who have suffered for the sake of the gospel will tell us over and over again, his strength is perfect when my strength is gone. Paul says one more thing about knowing Christ. Listen to the last part of verse 10 and into 11. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's wild language, right? I want to be conformed to the death of Jesus. What Paul is saying is this, that even death meant victory for him. Victory in Jesus. The reason he wanted to know more of Christ is because the more he knew of Christ, the more this fear of death would be dealt with. Because the sting of death has been removed for the believer. At the very best, all death can do is sting. And that's all it can do. Because death has no power over the life of a child of God. That's a crazy sentence. I just want to repeat it. Death has no power over a child of God. Paul wanted to mentally and emotionally and spiritually and personally experience more of what it meant to be with Jesus forever. It's, It's not a death wish. It's not a suffering wish. He's not saying, yeah, come on, bring the suffering. Come on, bring death. It's not what he's saying. It's just he wanted to know this one who loved him and gave himself up for him. He, he wanted to know Christ. It's kind of like what Paul's saying is, look, I want to know Christ more because he is my rest. Where do you want to be laid to rest? Where do you want your, your final resting place to be? 
Paul is saying, my final resting place is Jesus. And nothing can change that. And he said, I want to know more about what that means. Because this world will stress me out. And this world will create anxiety. And my spouse is going to drive me crazy. And my kids are going to drive me crazy. And my boss is going to drive me crazy. And the politicians are going to drive me crazy. And the culture is going to drive me crazy. So I need to know that my Savior is my rest. So Paul says, I want more of the resurrection. I want more of the sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death because only then will I have victory and only then will I understand rest, true rest. Steve Zeisler said this, I don't have a plan B. I don't have a fallback position. I have long ago jettisoned everything else. In some sense, I am so utterly stretched out on Christ that if he does not come through, I am lost. I haven't retained anything that might save me or build me up. I have nowhere else to go. Does that describe your life? Are you so stretched out for Jesus that you realize you have nothing else and that is Have you stood before Jesus and saw him looking at you with great love saying, me, me, and you took him up on the offer day after day after day, that he's your resurrection, that he's your life, that he's your victory, that he's your peace, that he's your rest. The world will not give us rest for our souls, but Jesus promises and Jesus has purchased it. I'm really thankful for Benita Reisner. I've read so much from her over the last two or three years. I've quoted her some in, in sermons and Bible studies. She's a wife, a mom, an author, lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. And she knows a lot about suffering. She knows a lot about affliction. She buried her two-month-old son, Paul. Six years after she buried Paul, she was diagnosed with a debilitating disease that eventually will mean she will have to have full-time help. She won't be able to do even the simplest things on her own. Six years after she was diagnosed with that debilitating disease, her husband left her and her daughters and eventually filed for divorce. That's just a snapshot of, of some of the suffering that she has endured. By God's grace, she is remarried and God is, is blessing her family again, but But she says that she learns a lot from the furnace of affliction. See, like Paul, through all of her suffering, she still wants to know more of Christ. She wants that peace. She wants that victory. She wants that rest. This is what she says about the furnace of affliction. As I go about my day, sometimes I forget God is with me. When I do, the furnace can grow so hot that I'm afraid I'll lose consciousness. I listen to what people are telling me. I listen to the negative things I'm telling myself. I listen to the voices that tell me my situation is hopeless. But then the Spirit gently reminds me that I can breathe if I poke my head out of the furnace. So I call out to God and begin to breathe freely again. I finally understand what it means to be connected to God all day long. It's good because... I need this because I don't know that I understand it yet. So I need her to help me. 
I finally understand what it means to be connected to God all day long. When I wasn't desperate, I didn't talk to God continually. Now in the furnace, I am ever aware of his presence. Calling out to him is the only way to breathe deeply. Otherwise, the heat of the furnace becomes unbearable. I remember God's promises. When I walk through the fire, I will not be burned. The flames will not consume me. And she says this, before the furnace of affliction, I didn't know what that meant. Now I know I am in the fire. Flames almost engulf me. It's stifling and suffocating. Anybody feeling that today? Anybody feeling that's coming this week? She says this, but when I thrust my head out of the furnace, I realize the fire has no power over me. It will not overwhelm me. And while I may long to be outside like everyone else, the water and food and air I get when I poke my head out of the furnace is better than any water or food or air I've ever experienced. My thirst is satisfied by rivers of living water. I'm eating honey sweeter than I've ever tasted, and the air is fresh and pure, the breath of life from God himself. How do you get the breath of life from God himself? Only one way. Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. So may we be like Paul. And may our record break and may we loop over and over again every day. May we pull our heads out of the furnace and say, God, I want to know Christ more. Give me more of Christ so that I can have peace, so that I can have victory, so that I can have rest, so that I can have the breath that is the very life of God. May we press on to know Christ more.